0: Welcome to a brand new season of Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we continue to explore how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. From Apollo 13 to Elon Musk. When things go wrong in space, it's often headline news. But what if those fails are exactly what's needed to progress?
1: Space is an inherently interdisciplinary science or activities because it's not just science it's engineering it's got people elements in whatever aspect even the uncrewed missions you have to have teams of people that can function together and yeah at the end of the day it's just problem solving but some of the most
0: complex problems there are. Today we meet a trio of space experts from the University of Portsmouth. Dr Jen Gupta is a senior public engagement and outreach fellow Dr. Lucy King is a space project manager, and Dr. Chris Patterson is a research software engineer with an impressive YouTube following.
2: Some of my favorite images from the shuttle are when it was fixing Hubble. They basically opened up the back of the shuttle and just parked the Hubble Space Telescope on the back of it. And the photos of that are just
0: mind-blowing. Over the next 20 minutes or so, we explore how both success and failure continue to inform space research, both here at the university and in the wider world. Oh. And not all the audio on this episode is up to the normal life-solved standard, because there were a few technical problems in the studio. We can get a telescope into space, but it's ten times harder down here on Earth. It's Dark Sky Week, the perfect opportunity to look to the heavens. And in terms of space technology in the UK, It's an exciting time, although not everyone knows it, according to Lucy.
1: The UK Space Agency has, in the last couple of years, really started to grow and expand, start to be more technically involved, have more technical capability, and they have the National Space Strategy, which is coming up for two years old. And in that, the UK has a stated ambition to be a global leader in space. They want to lead more of their own missions, rather than solely working with ESA and NASA. We still want to keep doing that, but we want to lead our own missions as well. So that's really exciting. Gradually, more people will become aware that the UK does have a space agency and we're doing cool things.
0: Be honest. Did you realise just how much space research is British-based? And here at the University of Portsmouth, it starts with PRISM, the Portsmouth Research Institute for Space Missions.
1: PRISM is just part of our mission space strategy. So we think of PRISM as our local element of the strategy. That's what we're doing within the university but regionally, we are one of the three founder universities of the Space South Central Regional Cluster, and that is the largest regional cluster of space businesses and academics in the country because there's a few of these different clusters around, and the idea is that they can enable academic and industry cooperation and collaboration, help bring in funding, act as a a landing pad for international visitors, and all kinds of different things. We're really proud to be a, a part of that, and What Space South Central allows us to do is to cultivate really close relationships with industry and with our other universities, Surrey and Southampton. So we can do joint academic and industry research projects, which is where you get a lot of really good innovation because you have all of the best bits from academia and industry together.
0: One of the most exciting space developments in recent years has been the JWST Telescope. It's one of the largest space telescopes that we have at the moment, and we received the first exciting pictures from it in the summer of 2022. But Jen says things have heated up even more in recent weeks.
3: The end of March was about measuring the surface temperature of an exoplanet, so that's a planet going around another star that's about 40 light-years away from us. It's a rocky exoplanet, so they think that's kind of similar to the inner planets of our solar system, but actually managing to detect the infrared light coming off the surface of that planet and measuring its temperature, it's about 225 degrees Celsius. It's perfect for cooking a pizza, but you probably wouldn't want to live on the surface of the planet. So it's doing everything from kind of looking at those planets, which is in my mind quite a small scale when you think about the universe, all the way through to picking up observations of the earliest galaxies that existed in the universe, looking further and further Back in time. This is the weird thing about astrophysics. As you detect things that are further and further away from us, you're actually looking back in time because light takes time to get to us. So JWST has, I think, the records at the moment, we're looking about 400 million years after the Big Bang.
0: To be fair, I think I've waited that long for a pizza delivery in the past. Let's bring Chris in here because he's got a stunning YouTube page that explores a lot of JWST's discoveries. It was the technology that first attracted Chris to the project?
2: I think before it launched, I wasn't sure exactly what the most amazing discoveries would be, but I was impressed by the technology to actually build it, because for astronomy, the bigger mirror you have in your telescope, the better images you produce in general. But if you picture a rocket which sends these telescopes to space, they're normally quite long and thin. So to get bigger and bigger telescopes, it gets harder and harder to fit a mirror in a long, thin rocket. So they wanted an eight and a half meter mirror, but to fit that in a rocket, it doesn't fit. So they had to fold up the mirror into segments. It's got 18 hexagonal segments that are all folded up and it launched. And then it had to unfold and travel a million and a half miles to where it's currently sat. And just that process, I thought it will be amazing if this works. Uh, It had something like 350 single points of failure, where if any one of those things had gone wrong, the telescope would have just not completely useless, but it pretty much wouldn't do what we wanted it to do.
0: It's quite a feat when you think about it. You and I might struggle to get a mirror back from IKEA in one piece. You'll hear more about how we can learn from failure later in this episode. But for now, let's focus on the successes of the JWST, because Chris became even more excited about the project following its successful deployment.
2: It's seen the most incredible things, from beautiful clouds of gas, which don't sound beautiful when you just say cloud of gas. They're called a nebula, which makes it sound much more pretty. And just exploring those pictures, exploring these exoplanets, like Jen said, is amazing. We have the chance to understand the composition of these planets or what makes up the air on those planets. And that's just amazing to me. For example, the exoplanet Jen mentioned, the planet is something like a thousand times dimmer than it the star it orbits. And yet we still manage to take light from that planet and break it down and understand the temperature of that planet. And that just blows my mind.
0: Time to play devil's advocate. How can we argue that the investment is worth it? Pretty pictures are all well and good, but how is the government's money being spent to improve our lives? Jen picks up the argument.
3: There are three things in your mobile phone that came about because of astrophysics research. So the first is your camera. Huge advances were made because of wanting to take better images of space. Your Wi-Fi. Some of the technology to do with Wi-Fi signals came from radio interferometry, so connecting radio telescopes together as if they're one giant radio telescope. Some of the technology of that fed into Wi-Fi. And you could argue that those two things would have happened regardless. It's just it maybe took less time because we needed it for astrophysics research. And the third thing that definitely wouldn't be useful without cosmology research, you need to understand Einstein's theory of relativity, for your GPS to be accurate. So we needed to get that fundamental understanding of how gravity works out in space in order for GPS to not put you like 10 metres down the
0: road. The predecessor to the JWST that we've probably all heard of is the Hubble Space Telescope. And unlike its current-day competitor, the initial images received back from Hubble weren't nearly as good.
3: Hubble was in a very different orbit to where JWST is. It's in a low-Earth orbit, which means that while the Space Shuttle was operating which it isn't anymore astronauts actually went and fixed Hubble which was kind of important that they could do that because there was a little bit of a problem with Hubble's mirror Hubble's mirror is one giant mirrors nine segments like JWST and something went slightly wrong and so the first images that came back from Hubble were really blurry and essentially what they did was they went and put contact lenses on it So they sent astronauts up in the space shuttle and put this correction lens on it to get the images that we see now. But yeah, I think back in 1990, when it was taking its first images, it was a bit of a
2: disaster. Some of my favourite images from the shuttle are when it was fixing Hubble, because I don't know if you know this. They basically opened up the back of the shuttle and just parked the Hubble Space Telescope on the back of it. And the photos of that are just mind blowing.
0: And that's all part of the learning we're exploring in this episode. Mistakes accidents and solutions to unexpected problems are key to informing future space projects. Lucy again.
1: Space missions are inherently complex, but that is what makes them really rewarding to work on that challenge. Space is an inherently interdisciplinary science or activity because it's not just science, it's engineering. It's got people elements like In whatever aspect, even the uncrewed missions, you have to have teams of people that can function together. And yeah, it's just problem solving, but some of the most complex problems there are.
0: Elon Musk's SpaceX is probably the best known company in its field right now. And you might remember recent videos of rockets exploding and crashing down to Earth as they tested their various designs. You might think that SpaceX is making more mistakes than others, but there's a good chance you're wrong, as Jen explains.
3: Their failure rate is comparable to other space missions, I think. Or their success rate, you should probably say. It's like up in the, you know, 90-something percent success rate. But because they went down this route of live streaming a lot of their launches, and one of the things that SpaceX is known for is that they would launch their rockets and then they'd land the boosters back on a barge. So you're talking about reusable rockets, which is great. But sometimes those boosters in the test flights will, will come down, just like explode <laughs> on the barge. And because it's being live streamed, everyone sees it. I think one thing that SpaceX have done really well is being open about it and showing all aspects, good and bad. They've got a video, SpaceX, on their page on YouTube of how not to launch a rocket, which is just like a compilation of all these explosions. They're not shying away from it. And I think that's really healthy to understand that... Failure is part of it and we learn from that because in the back of my mind I'm always like what if there was something that had gone wrong but just not wrong enough to make a difference that time and then next time it might be catastrophic. It's always heartbreaking where a rocket explodes and people's missions are on there and something that they've dedicated decades of their lives to get into that point as their one shot and and that gets destroyed. Obviously that's a different story, but when it's in tests, it's really good to have failure and to learn from it.
0: And it's no surprise to discover that accidents happen outside of the Earth's atmosphere just as often.
2: Here's Chris. One I learned about recently, it was a private mission from an Israeli company. It was called Beresheet, and it was meant to be a lander for the moon. And it was showing off the technology it was meant to land on the moon, and it had what they called a, a, like a library of important things about humanity. What they deemed important was... Interesting. Like some of it was very interesting, but they also had like the instructions to how to do some of David Copperfield's magic tricks on it. But they also put a bunch of frozen tardigrades on board. And tardigrades are quite a famous sort of microorganism. They're like these tiny, tiny things. They're called water bears. They're actually really cute if you have a microscope. But they're famously good at surviving in very difficult conditions. So, like very high or low temperatures, the vacuum of space, radiation, all that sort of thing. And this company secretly put some of those on their lander, tried to land on the moon and crashed. And then they admitted that they had done this and they thought, we may have sprayed life over the moon accidentally. Famously, a a very hardy thing. (laughs) So this is an interesting case of failure where everyone sort of thought, oh, this is actually quite bad. (laughs) Nowadays, we seem to have decided that it's probably fine. There was a paper recently from Queen Mary in London that looked at tardigrade surviving impact tests. And they actually loaded some tardigrades into little bullets and shot them to try and recreate the same sort of forces. And it turns out that maybe they can't survive a big impact. So while I don't wish death on any tardigrades, (laughs) it's probably good that we didn't spray them over the moon.
0: So no risk of giant tardigrades roaming the moon's surface anytime soon. How about a positive story of how failure in space actually made things better for us down here on Earth? During the early launches of satellites for the European version of GPS, two ended up in the wrong orbit, resulting in a better-than-expected outcome. Lucy picks up the story.
1: They were put into the wrong orbit because of a failure of the launch vehicle. So they were put into an elliptical orbit instead of a perfectly circular one, which is what they were meant to be in. But because of that, because they were able to then work out what the parameters of that elliptical orbit were it meant it had a very well-defined change in altitude that was very regular as it went round and that meant that they could do very accurate testing of general relativity because as Jen mentioned earlier you have to take into account both general and special relativity in order to make sure that your frequency that you're transmitting is accurate and so by using the very accurate clocks that are on board and knowing this change. In the the altitude of the orbit, they improved the measurement of general relativity, or one of the important parameters for that theory, by I think it was at least five times. And this all came from something that was a mistake. It was a failure. It wasn't meant to happen. And they just went, you know what, we can get something
0: out of that. And Lucy thinks that failure is the key to future success in space research and exploration.
1: Failure is a good thing. And Failing a lot and failing fast is actually one of the best routes to innovation. And that's somewhere where private companies, they can do that because in some ways they're under less scrutiny because it's their own money, which is partly why SpaceX has been so successful because they can just fail as much as they like. And so they're making great steps towards innovation. So yeah, I think in general, there's a lesson there that we should just not obviously set out to fail. (laughs) But you know, a little bit of risk and a little bit of failure is not inherently a bad
0: thing. And that neatly wraps up the first episode of this series. The internet means that millions of us get to see space failures in real time, something we couldn't have done in the era of the Apollo missions or the space shuttle. But learning from those failures is actually driving today's innovation and advances. And here at the University of Portsmouth, we're excited to help make the UK a leading space nation. As the inventor of the light bulb, Thomas Edison, is reported to have said, I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday, paying homage to Jazz Appreciation Month, exploring the hidden undertones of jazz and how the genre is so much more than just music. Catch you then.